Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name again. It is good to be with you. I too enjoyed our Sunday school time about truth. Vital, important subject and connecting it with love is always so much more meaningful as well. I had to think of Jesus' words as well where he told us that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's a powerful word. This morning at the end of the message, I plan to give you opportunity to share with each other, and so maybe you can keep that in mind. I don't mean it to be, tell me what you appreciated that I said. That's, I kind of resent that. But don't, don't do that. What God spoke to you or what you'd like to share with your brothers or something that has happened in your life recently, that would be appropriate. The title this morning is Of One Accord, and I'd like to begin in Ephesians chapter 5. And those of you getting older, whatever that means, will have heard this passage read over and over and over again at weddings. But did you know that the Bible actually tells us that this passage is primarily about Christ and the church? (coughs) So I'd like to look at it in that context this morning. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, even as Christ is the head... Sorry. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy And without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh." This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. To be clear this morning, I'm not being critical of using this passage for weddings. It's totally appropriate to do that. The correlation or the comparison that he is making between earthly marriage is to the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. And the things he says about the relationship there, the love that Christ has for the church, the that he is the head of the church, that he gave himself for it, that he loved it, that he's going to sanctify and cleanse it, that he's going to present it a glorious church, having free from spot and wrinkle, that it's going to be holy and without blemish, That's talking about the church, first of all, and then also talking about the relationship between husbands and wives. 
So what I'd like to capture from this passage is just the truth that the Bible brings out that the church is compared to a bride. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. Now, it's helpful for us to understand that more fully if we understand a bride in Jewish context or in that early church context rather than in our context. We have a certain method of finding brides. Keep your eyes open. Hopefully you ask her father, then you date her for a while, then you're engaged to her, and then you get married. You should have asked her father again maybe in there. Whatever the process is. We know that process. But that's not how it was in the time of this writing. It's not how it was in Jesus' day. It was very different. In fact, in those days, the bride was chosen by the parents for their son. Some of you are going, "Ah, can you imagine? How would you like, young men, if your father and mother were the ones to choose your bride? Statistically, it's been proven that our way isn't necessarily better. Okay, It's just different. But I had to wonder as I thought of that too, how different would young people's relationships be with their parents if that was one of the key decisions that was going to take place in those rebellious years as we talk about sometimes in teenagers. When this bride is chosen, then a dowry was established. A dowry was a price that was paid from the bridegroom-to-be to the bride's father. And that depended on the the ability of the bridegroom. Sometimes it was a low price. Sometimes it was a higher price. The point was it was something sacrificial that the bridegroom-to-be, the young man, gave to the father of the bride-to-be. Once that dowry was agreed upon, sometimes there was a little negotiation there. I'm not sure how that all went down, but there was. And then the groom would pay that dowry to the bride's father. And then there was a special ceremony, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but there there was a time where the, the young lady and the young man and both of their fathers would sit down together, the dowry was paid, and this young man would fill a marriage cup, it was called, and he would set it in front of the potential bride. And sometimes we get the impression that she had no say in this matter. If she refused the cup, there was no betrothal. There was no wedding arrangement. If she reaches out and accepts that cup, it is her symbol that she is accepting this arrangement and that she is committing herself to be betrothed or engaged, as we might say in our day, to this young man. After that ceremony, that covenant relationship was established, then the groom returns to his father's house and he prepared a place for them to live together. It was often attached to the father's house or part of the father's house. And he was busily building, preparing this place for his bride, for them to live together. In the meantime, while he's doing that, the bride is preparing herself for when this wedding is going to arrive. And that's going to be at some unknown time in the future to take her home to her bridegroom's home. Again, I had to wonder, ladies, how would you live if every morning when you woke up you didn't know if this was going to be your wedding day or just an ordinary day? I expect there would have been a bag packed near the door. 
And then when the day finally came, this groom would, as directed by his father, would, would leave his home and he would make his way with his groomsmen, a form of procession through the village to the bride's house to fetch his bride. And this is where we get the account where Jesus talks about the the ten virgins, and there's this cry that the bridegroom cometh. That, that's where this context comes from, this story. There was, whenever this procession started, you can just imagine they weren't that different than us in this way. There'd be a little bit of a gossip that beats the bridegroom to the bride's house. This cry goes ahead of him. He's coming! And what does that mean? Well, get ready! Everyone was excited for this wedding. And after then they got to the bride's house, they would take her with them back to father's house to the groom's prepared place and that's where the wedding feast would be and the wedding would be completed now i trust that you can see some obvious parallels here with the relationship that we have with christ first of all we have been chosen by god god chose the bride for his son the bible tells us that he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Because this bride, the church, needs redemption, that dowry is extremely high. And what is the price by which we were purchased? The very blood of Jesus Christ. And our marriage covenant has been sealed. Every one of us has been offered this gift of salvation. That is the cup set before you. If you took that gift of salvation from Christ... It is also a betrothal, a commitment that you're going to maintain your purity in preparation and watchfulness for when Christ will return. And our marriage covenant is sealed. We have the earnest of the Holy Spirit, the Bible talks about. And we need to be watchful and ready, making ourselves ready. Is your bag packed, we could say? Every morning do you get up and wonder, is this the day that the bridegroom is going to come? And one day soon... Christ will return for his bride. And he will take us with the whole bride. Where? To his father's house. To a place where he has been preparing for us to dwell forever with him. That's what he's been doing. We read of that in John 14. So friends, this morning, as we are in Christ... Our identity then as Christians is in the bride of Christ. There is one bride, not hundreds or thousands. I think we get a little bit too individualistic in this thought in our day that Jesus is coming for me. Well, he is, but only as your identity is in Christ and in the bride. He is coming for a bride, one bride. And I would just like to highlight a few things here to remind you or to think about. One, to to refuse to identify with the bride of Christ here puts you in a very dangerous place. I don't know what you expect to happen when the bridegroom comes to claim his bride if you're not in the church. So I know there is a, a period of time to in transition and so on. I'm not being critical of any of that, but if there's something in your life that bars you from being part of the church, you ought to be very concerned about that because Jesus Christ is coming soon for his brides. I'd also like to remind you that we lose our own identity 
in this bride. It's not about me. My identity is only in the bride of Christ. The only value I have to God is as he brings me in Christ within the body of Christ. And we need to remember that. Maybe one way to think about it is that the last legitimate independent decision that you make is the decision to receive that cup, to accept salvation, to choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's an independent decision. After that, there are no more independent decisions. You become part of the bride, and we are one in the Lordship of Christ. Now, what I'd like you to think about this morning and the focus of the message is what is God's intent for His bride during this betrothal period. We promise to watch, to wait, and to be pure as we wait for the wedding to be fulfilled. But what does that look like? And there would be lots and lots of material we could look at this morning. So if you feel like I've been incomplete this morning, I, I can't be complete. There's too many places we could go. But turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. I would just like to notice some things that it tells us here about this experience in the bride. 1 Peter 5, I'm going to read the first five verses. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, when Jesus returns for his bride, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. There's just a few things here I notice. First of all is that there is a role for leadership within the bride. Okay? God has ordained leadership in society, in the home, and also in the church, in the bride, as we wait for his return, there is a place God has called and ordained leadership within the church. Now we can resent it, we can dislike it, we can struggle with it, we can do whatever else we want with it, but it is God's plan, alright? We can't, ex- we can't avoid that truth. Now I want to notice a few things here as it relates to leaders. And this is a specific group of you here this morning. But it says here that they are also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. What does that mean? First of all, to me, it means that we are called as leaders to a pure, exemplary life. It's a critically important part of effective leadership within the church. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 10 there talks about conducting ourselves holily and justly and unblameably. You can explore that further later. We are to be a partaker of this glory that is being revealed. Sadly, sometimes today we hear leaders trumpeting their authority. It's far better to quietly demonstrate your holiness than to trumpet your authority. 
Secondly, to leaders, it says here we are called to feed the flock of God. That's in verse 2. We are called to feed. This feeding is with the words. We are to preach and teach the truth of the words. We are to do that in a way that is making the word the most palatable, digestible way possible. That doesn't mean we water down the truth or we take away the truth or we hide from the truth. But it does mean that we try to make our preaching engaging, that we make our teaching compelling. Not because of us, but because the truth is compelling and engaging. And God help us if we have failed to do that. We are called to feed the flock. And there is an an emphasis there too, I believe, on reaching all ages with the truth. People experience different things at different times in life. And as leaders, we are called to put food out that the lambs can reach, as well as those who are the most mature in the flock can digest and be fed. So that is the first command we have there. And then the second command, it says here in verse 2, taking the oversight thereof. And then following that, there's a number of conditions in how that oversight is to be taken. I'm not going to spend time there. But I see these two commands, to feed the flock and to take the oversight. The responsibility for maintaining the purity and the readiness of the flock rests firmly on the shoulders of its leaders. That's unavoidable. Brother Dwight, Brother Delvin, Brother Curtis, prairies, purity, and readiness in the bride of Christ depends on you. There's no other way to say that. You can't get away from it. Others in the past, Brother Warren and Brother Dennis and Brother Arnie have passed that forward to you and you will one day pass it forward to another generation if the Lord tarries. But the Bible tells us to take the oversight thereof. So take it, brethren. You can't escape it. Take it. Don't resent it. Don't hide from it. Don't shrink back from the monstrous task. You are unable in yourself, but you are fully able with the grace of God. Don't apologize for it either. Just do. Holily, justly, and unblameably. Then I'd like to notice, as it relates to leaders, the responsibility of members. We could look at other scriptures as well. I'll just give you, there's five thems in the Bible that refer to leaders. I'll just give them to you quickly. You can maybe study them later. There's two in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're called to know them and to esteem them. And in Hebrews 13, we are called to remember them and to obey them and to salute them. So the Bible has some specific directions for how you ought to relate to those who are called to feed the flock and to take the oversight thereof. In this passage, we see the phrase in verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now that phrase there is not talking about youth submitting to older men. That is also true, but specifically it is talking here about the same elder that we have in verse, the chapter 5 verse 1 where it's talking about the elders which are among you I exhort and also an elder. This is talking about leaders and we are called to submit to them. And I would just say to you this morning, all of you church members here in regular attendance here as well, this is more about you than it is about them. We talked a little bit about trust. In Sunday school, trust is a choice. And sometimes I see people 
that always find reasons why they choose not to trust. You will always be able to find those. I'm not saying this critically, but every human man that has ever served in church leadership has had their faults and their flaws. And if you are looking for a reason not to trust, you can find those. But brothers and sisters, this morning there is also lots of reasons to trust. And trust is first a choice. And as we choose to trust then our heart comes along as well. Your attitude, your intentions, your heart has more to do with you than it has to do with them. We are also then called here, as we move now beyond the relationship simply between leaders and the congregation, as we read on in verse 5, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. We are called to be subject one to another. This is across the body, including the leadership. It's a together community of believers, a bride of Christ, dialoguing within the will of Christ by the Spirit. It means submitting my will to His will. It's submitting His my will to our will. Submitting my goals to our goals. It means my wishes are laid aside for the well-being of us. I said earlier that the body of Christ is not about me. It's about we. All right? It's not about you this morning. It's about the community of believers. And the quicker we understand that and the more effectively we apply that in our lives, the more enjoyable the Christian experience is going to be. I want you to notice here the opposite of this being subject or being submissive one to another. Do you notice what he says here? Be clothed with humility because the opposite is pride. Pride is what God sees when submission is missing. Do you know that pride also then cuts us off from the grace of God? That's what it says here. God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. Grace is, in very simple definition that I have learned to like over the years, is simply the power of God to do the will of God. How effective are you going to be in your Christian life without the power of God to do the will of God? You're not going to be effective. And that is the struggle that many face today. When we are consumed with pride, we elevate self, we elevate a whole lot of other things that are not helpful to our Christian journey, And we fail because we don't have the power, the grace of God in our lives. We have the same thoughts in James chapter 4. I'm not going to take the time to learn there, or to look there. Be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility. Don't be clothed with pride. Many, 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 and I could keep going with the many's, church issues boil down simply to pride. That is the issue. The Bible tells us only by pride comes contention. Do we believe that? What is pride? Pride is self-will, selfishness. And I would just say further that most of the fracturing that we've seen in the Mennonite churches over the last 75 years has been more about pride than about purity. I said most. I'm not saying there's never a reason, but an awful lot of the splintering that we have seen has been nothing to do with purity Everything to do with selfish pride. 
Don't do that. Be subject one to another. Turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue to consider what is life like within the bride of Christ in this waiting period while we wait for his return. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, let me just stop there. That's rhetoric there, okay? He's saying is there, if there is any fellowship in Christ, if there's any meaningfulness that comes from relating with Christ, if there's any blessings that come from your relationship with Christ, well surely you would all say, yes, of course there is some. Then he goes on and he says, if that's the case, then do this. Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, there's our title, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, if Christ is anything to us, then his plea is to fulfill his joy and to simply be one. Be united. Be like-minded, he says. Think in the same ways. Have the same love. We talked about that love in Sunday school. Be of one accord. And again, he says, of one mind. The idea of one accord is of one soul, connected on a deep level as one in Christ. When we are brought together as the bride of Christ, we are connected with a common goal, a common purpose, a common pursuit, a common lover. Can I say that? Do you understand what I mean in its purity? Jesus Christ is going to return for us. We can't wait to meet Him and join Him for all of eternity. Well, how again is this oneness going to come to pass? Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. How's that going for us? Nothing through strife or vain glory. Never elevate self, selfish ambitions, personal agendas. But let everything be done, he says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What is your standing in your mind compared to the standing of your brethren and sisters. You know what pride says? I am essential. I am enlightened. I am spirit-led. Therefore, my opinions are very important. Lowliness or humility says, I need to listen carefully to my brethren. They have the voice of the Spirit. They are enlightened. How do you view your brothers and sisters and how do you view the input that they have in your life don't focus on what's best for you he says in verse 4 look not every man on his own things but every man also on the things of others but on what's best for for we for the community for us again not me but we What's best for the brotherhood today? What is most likely to bring about the holiness and the preparedness that we will be ready when Christ returns? Are we thinking about that? And what's best for the bride tomorrow? 
In 20 years from now, when these leaders that are currently bearing the responsibility of maintaining purity here pass it off to some of the young men sitting up here, what is it going to be like then? We need to be thinking not only about the now, but about the future and about how it impacts the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And then it tells us here to take on the mind of Christ. That mind, he goes on to describe, is a mind of humble obedience to the will of the Father. So again, how does this look practically? How do we live it out? And there would be many things to touch on, but I'm just going to touch on two areas this morning. First of all, concerning gifts. The Bible has a lot to say about gifts. And the Bible tells us that God gives differing gifts to each person. You all have differing gifts. Do you know why he gives gifts to people? We could go to Ephesians 4 and we could go to 1 Corinthians 12. The purpose of the gifts is very, very clear and very specific. To bring about the edification of the body or of the bride. It's for the benefit of we. It's not for the benefit of me. It's never meant to divide. And I would just say to you this morning, if you have a gift... And the way that you perceive to use that gift is causing contention or strife in the body, then you're misunderstanding your gift or you're certainly misunderstanding how to use your gift. And let me just give you a few examples. A number of years ago now in our community, there was a group of young men with musical talent with instruments. And they... They were very talented. They decided to put together a band. And the style of music that they felt was going to be compelling to the audience they wanted to reach, with the gospel for a good... I don't doubt their their purposes, was not one that the congregations they were part of could support. The style of music was not conducive with what we stand for and what we believe. And there were a number of men... I was one of them who who pled with these young men, made an appeal in truth, if I can reflect back on the Sunday school lesson again. And that plea was rejected. They believed that God was calling them to do this thing. And they went about singing in their band and eventually it fell apart and it went away. But it was contentious for those congregations. I have also observed and watched men who are convinced that God is calling them into leadership. And somehow God didn't get that message quite as quickly as they got it. That can be incredibly divisive in a congregation. I'm not minimizing the call that God puts on men's lives, but that's a private call that you ought to keep private until and if and when God makes it public. It's divisive if you don't. I have also watched people with gifts in different areas. It can be a lot of things, whether it's speaking, whether it's leading singing, whether it's musical ability, where they are so gifted that they are critical of others who are not as gifted. That's not the way your gift is to be used in the body. It's meant to edify. The Bible tells us that we are to covet the best gifts at the end of chapter 12. And then he says, let me show you a better way. You know what that way is? The way of love. 
Yeah. Love. And he goes on to start chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians with multiple examples of incredible gifts. All understanding, all wisdom, all knowledge. That I can move mountains. I have that much faith. That I give all of my goods to the poor and I even give my body to be burned. But then he says, if you don't have love, what is the love for? The bride of Christ. And you're nothing. Love is intricately connected to submission. I don't know how often you think of that, but Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What is that? Submission. Wives are called to express love by submission. Husbands are called to love their wives by giving their life for their wives. What is that? Submission. Giving yourself to someone else. Love is intimately connected with submission. And the last area I'd like to look at this morning as we think about dwelling together in the Bride of Christ is concerning practical standards. And some of your ears are closing up already right now. I, I don't mean it to be that way. I just ask you to stay with me. Let's start in Acts chapter 15. I just want to highlight a few biblical truths here that are foundational for your understanding about what God intends in the Bride of Christ. There's a lot of noise in this area, and lots of it isn't truth. The first thing I would like you to see here is that it is biblical to impose non-salvation standards on God's people. Did you know that? That's biblical. Look at chapter 15 here. In verse 1 it says, Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said... Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Did these men believe this was a salvation issue? Yes, they did. And it goes on to talk about how Paul and Barnabas resisted them. Paul and Barnabas resisted them. Ultimately, they decided they better bring this to the church, the, the leaders of the church specifically at Jerusalem. And they came in verse 7. Here, after there had been much disputing, godly men can dispute even, did you know that? Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of God, the gospel, and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Again, connects back to the message the other night. God is no respecter of persons. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Was this a salvation issue according to Peter? No way. You did not need to be circumcised to be saved. And so there's some back and forth, and they talk about the current events there in the next few verses. Paul talks about how the churches are being taught. And then in verse 19, we have what we would call a motion out of this meeting. Wherefore my sentence is, this is James speaking, that we trouble not them which are from the Gentiles, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them. Did you catch that word? They wrote something down. Can you believe it? They made written standards here. 
We write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Now, I don't have time to dig into this and I'm still not sure what I believe all in my own studies. But I do not believe the word fornication in that list refers to sexual immorality like we talked about last night. It means something else. I'm still figuring that out. Why do I say that? Because there's no church leaders that will ever dialogue about whether or not something that is clear in Scripture is necessary to do. And that is clear. The other three things you can clearly see are connected to... The first is connected to meats, meats and idols, which is not a salvation issue. Things strangled, which is again not a salvation issue, and from blood. That is not a salvation issue, but they are calling these Gentile believers to do these four things. And it says then, then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their company, I'm reading in verse 22, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after the, this manner. And you would think that this will be the end of the church, right? It's not. In verse 30, So when they were dismissed, they went to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, or these written standards, and the letter that came with it, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And if you go over into chapter 16, as Paul continues to travel from church to church, to Derby and Lystra and other places, in verse 4 it says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. This was not a negative thing for the church. But it is normal, it is expected, and it is right that there are standards written for how God's people should conduct their lives. I want you to turn now with me to Romans 14. A few other things I want to see here. So it's biblical to have standards. It's normal to have some more restrictive and some less restrictive within the body of Christ. I didn't know what words to use there. But more restrictive, do you understand what I mean by that? You believe the road is narrower that you need to walk in obedience to Christ. The road of understanding of how to stay away from the world is narrower. Someone who is less restrictive believes that is wider. Some people use liberal, conservative. There's all kinds of terms. I don't like terms. I'm trying to pick something as neutral as possible to still give you the clarity of what it means. Now, I want you to notice here, this passage is written by Paul specifically addressing one of these issues that we saw in Acts 15, and is also causing struggle and strife in the church. And he talks to here of those who are weak. Okay, in verse 1, Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. The one who is weak is the one who is more restrictive in the way I just said it. And the ones who are strong, as he will, the contradict, or contrast he will give, and we'll see that word sometimes throughout here. I'll try to highlight it as we go. The strong are those who believe that it's less restrictive. 
We don't often think of it in that direction, so I want to make sure you're with me. Weak is an understanding that God's way is very restrictive. Strong is the understanding that a more full understanding of the will of God that allows broader understanding. In this particular instance, what he's describing is the weak believed that if any meat had been offered to idols, it was a violation of their conscience to eat that meat. Paul, who says he was strong, understood that an idol is nothing and any offering things to idol is nothing and he felt free to eat that meat in free conscience. So just let me notice here what the tendency is. And this is still true today. There's some of you who are more progressive and some of you who are less progressive. More restrictive, more conservative. The tendency of those who are more progressive and less restrictive, the strong as this passage describes, (coughs) is found in verse 3. Let not him that eateth, so that would be the strong, despise him that eateth not. The eateth is the meat we're talking about here. The tendency is of those who are strong is to despise the weak. And that is still true today. Those who believe the road is broad and the restrictions don't need to be so tight, look at those who are most conservative in the circles that they're in and look down their noses at them. Like they don't quite understand. They're pretty unenlightened. And that is despising. It's like they're not, they're meaningless. And that is the tendency still today. The opposite is also true then. The tendency of the weak is to judge the strong. So the weak again being those who are more restrictive, looking at those who are less restrictive and allow more things in their life than what the weak are comfortable with. Look at verse 4. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? That is the tendency. We have it also at the end of verse 3. Let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. The tendency of the weak is to judge the strong. We look at them and we say, are you sure that you really have a relationship with Christ? If you allow that thing in your life, you must not be a Christian. That is the tendency there. So remember that. And when whichever side you fall on, and it can be different on different issues sometimes, but remember that that is the tendency across that line. And again, I say it's normal for both of these to exist within the body. In fact, it's healthy. Many church splits have happened on this line. And you know what happens? The body becomes weakened every time. I want to notice a third thing here. The more restrictive those who are weak are beholden to their conscience. Go to the end of the chapter here. Verse 23. He that doubteth. Okay, that's the weak, the one who believes that he should not eat this meat because it's been offered to idols. Is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You know what that means? That no matter what your community church standard is here, if your conscience says you may not do something, but you believe God has shown you that in your conscience, you may not do that thing. Okay? That's what it means. Whatever we cannot do in faith, meaning that we have full confidence that God is pleased if we do it, then we can't do that. 
And that's what Paul is saying to these men. If you believe that that's an idol and that that idol is this meat cursed, then do not eat that meat. It is sin for you to eat it. So I always say to young Christians, especially, respect your conscience. It's a precious gift from God. It needs to be enlightened by truth. And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. But where it is now is where you need to walk. And do not violate your conscience. It's too precious to do that. Now I want to look here at the less restrictive or the strong, as we say, in, or as he says in this passage. The greater responsibility and the greater expectation is actually laid upon the strong, the less restrictive. And it's only logical. If we're talking about weak and strong, the more mature ought to be the ones that do the most work to make this function well within a brotherhood. And I just want to begin reading at verse 13 here. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. As it relates to this specific issue, who was going to be the one that could cause someone to stumble here? The strong. The one that would be willing to eat that meat from the idol shop. That's the one that could cause someone to stumble. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. There's that same principle again we saw in verse 23. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, <clears throat> the brother that is grieved is the weak brother, the strong that has the meat. This is what he's talking about. Now walkest thou not charitably? Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Who is that last sentence written to? The strong. Let not them then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things <coughs> which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby their brother stumbleth. That's in verse 13, by the way. Or is offended. That's in verse 16. Or is made weak is in verse 19. That list of three areas where Paul says these are three reasons you should not eat. Hast thou faith? What faith is he talking about there? He's talking about the understanding that he talked about in verse 14, that he knows idols are nothing and that meat offered to idols are nothing. That's the faith. But have it to God, have it to thyself before God. In other words, have that faith privately. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And continue into chapter 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, for even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. 
Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded of one accord toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we saying from all of that? The less restrictive or the strong are called to submit their liberty to avoid stumbles and to maintain peace. That's what the scriptures teach here. If it's controversial, they're called to forfeit their liberty. We see that in those verses. And I remember hearing this story a number of years ago about a man that was ordained in leadership. And he he wanted to grow a beard. And, and trust me, I know beards are nothing, but beards are a thing. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Anyway, he has shared this one morning, I think in a sermon or in Sunday school or whatever, he just felt that he had that liberty. And there were several brethren after the service that came up to him and were quite alarmed that he would consider growing a beard. Do you know what he did? He didn't grow a beard. That's what it means, brothers and sisters. So when I would do something that I feel is within the boundaries of what God asks of me, but it causes others to question my walk with God, or it causes others to stumble in their walk with God, I will not do it. Paul says he will not eat meat as long as he lives, if that's what it does to his brother. Now, as I think about standards again, there are only two reasons why individuals become less restrictive in practice. We see a lot of that in our day, right? Maybe it's only in Ontario, I don't know. That things that people used to do, they don't do anymore. You see that here too? Or at least you know friends that do that. There's only two reasons it happens. One is that there is a greater understanding of the Word and the will of God. That there is... The understanding grows that they understand the path is not actually here, but it's over here. That can happen. And I'll give you an example. I had a friend who, as he was a young Christian, he understood 1 Corinthians 11 to teach that men should never in any circumstances cover their heads. So he wouldn't wear a hard hat. He wouldn't wear a hockey helmet. He wouldn't wear a stocking cap, whatever you call those things you use to cover your head in the wintertime. He didn't do that. And as long as that was his conviction, he shouldn't do that. But as he continued to converse with other brethren around that scripture, and as he studied that word in 1 Corinthians 11, he came to the understanding that that's not what that's talking about, that it's speaking more specifically about a symbolic religious covering, and that there cannot be that type of covering, and that as much as possible we ought to have our heads uncovered because they are the glory of God. Once he came to that knowledge and understanding, you know what happened in his world? The path got wider, okay? That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Paul said the same thing about meat. He said there were many men that believed this was the path. But I know that this is the path. Doesn't mean I'm going to walk all the way out there. But it does mean I understand that's the path. So that is possible. I will just say about that method. Or that happening. The reason for change. It rarely comes by pursuing it. It simply happens by more enlightening of the spirit. 
And it certainly doesn't come by practicing those areas so that we violate our conscience and expand our understanding by violating our conscience. It doesn't happen like that. The second reason, and probably the predominant reason that we see change in our world, is that we are being influenced by the world. It's just that simple. Those are the only two reasons that we move to a more progressive position. Now, I want us to understand today that the world comes to us filtered through church culture, okay? We have pressures directly from the world. We do. Those things, there's, there's worldly music, and unfortunately, some people are drinking that right in and making it part of their libraries and their music. So there is that influence directly from the world. But more often, especially when it comes to fads and fashions of the world and trends in the world, not just with clothing, but in other areas as well, it's filtered through the churches, as in that the, the most progressive ones out there filter out some things and other things are adapted and become normalized. The next layer of less progressive filters out another layer and so on and so on and filters down to us through church culture. So just because you see something in another church setting that you're drawn to and attracted to doesn't mean it's not influenced by the world, okay? That's what I'm trying to point out. I will also say this, that almost no one ever has admitted this motivation, right? Have you ever heard someone that, we're actually doing this now because we're, we're trending towards the world. Have you ever met someone that said that? No. Always they say, well, I'm more spiritual enlightened, and I have a better testimony with Christ than I've ever had before. That's what every one of them says. So the question is, can we take their words? I know that I do this, and I assume they do too, that we always put everything, when we present it publicly, in the best possible light. And we're not always honest about our true motivations. And if the reasons we're doing things, and the reason things are moving, is because of what we see in others, it's actually quite simple to tell the difference here. This gets really involved when we're talking about how our understanding gets broader. This is not involved at all when it comes from without and it's the pressure of the world. We don't even want to talk about it because it seems restrictive. In fact, if you go back and read history, some of the accounts where there was interaction between those who were trying to maintain a biblical walk and those who were moving quickly towards the world, they literally talked about, let's be practical. Let's not talk about what the scriptures say. We need to look at this honestly and practically in our generation. Practical arguments are pretty weak and very dangerous, actually. I'm not saying we can't ever be practical. We need to be practical. <clears throat> but we don't need to first be practical. So there's only two reasons. Greater understanding of the word and will of God or that we're being influenced by the world. And when that happens in our life, personally, where we no longer practice something that we did a few years ago, can we be honest enough to identify what that motivation is? And one we should be really afraid of. Now, I want to say further, when it comes to these practical issues, when a brotherhood agrees to uphold something, that changes the perspective. 
It's no longer an issue where each person can follow their own conscience within the guidelines of what is offensive to their brethren. It's no longer like that. It is now a community of believers that has looked at the issue together, similar to what they did in Acts 15, and has come to a conclusion and has decided that the best way to move forward in this generation with our families is to do it in this way. I happen to know you do have a brotherhood agreement here. I saw one the other night. I'm not going to turn to it and read it, but you all know you have one? Do you know that? Have you looked at it? In the last five years, it's kind of important to remind ourselves we all have the same tendency to forget. And sometimes we have that tendency on purpose, it seems, by some people. But have you ever stopped to think about what arrogance it is to, after there is an agreement brought together on a certain issue, to then say that I still know better and I'm going to do it my way? That is just shockingly arrogant. And it is exactly what the Bible warns us about, that we are to be of one accord and that we are to be clothed with humility and be subject one to another and not to fall away into pride. Now this is what burdens me. I have observed in my short lifetime, I'm 44 years old. Soon I'm going to be ordained for 20 years in a few years. In the current Mennonite culture, church culture, there are those today, I hope none of you sitting here, but who believe it is their right to do as they please regarding church standards. And then what happens, and this is what's so tragic, it becomes a growing trend within the congregation. And it moves, and it moves, And it moves and it changes the brotherhood through corrosion over time. And most often what I see happening is the church eventually adjusts its written agreement to to accommodate the evolving practices of its members. Does that sound like a good way to approach issues to you? Is that what it means to be of one accord and one mind? In the words of Jesus from Luke 17, I trow not, I think not. I am not here this morning telling you that every situation, every practice needs to stay exactly the same as it has been for the last 50 years. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that can we actually have the courage to maintain what we have agreed upon and then discuss it before we change our practice. I've often wondered how much credibility should someone have to speak into an issue where they have already moved beyond what we agreed to do as a brotherhood. How much credibility should they have to speak into that issue? You're already demonstrating by your life that you're not supporting the brotherhood, right? Is that saying it too strong? Am I being unloving in my truth right now? I just don't think we think this through very much. And if we aren't careful, we will follow the path of so many other Mennonite churches throughout history that move and move and move. And all of a sudden, the things you're moving are not little things anymore. They're big things. So brothers and sisters, we are not 
justified or righteous because we obey our church brotherhood agreement. But we are certainly not righteous and justified when we don't obey them either. Do they mean something? Like when you agreed to do that, did they mean something to you? And did, when you last agreed, whenever that was in your setting here, is that just for then or do you continue agreeing until you agree to change it and then you agree in that area? Like it, I do think it's very, very important. There's two words I want to give you a definition here of in closing. The one word is independent. And Brother Davey mentioned that word in Sunday school. I found it interesting. We live in this independent society. I think he talked about an independent culture where we do everything ourselves. We have our own homes, our own businesses, etc., etc. Independent is to be free from outside control not depending on another's authority. Does that sound to you like the church, the bride of Christ? No. That is not what the church, the bride of Christ, is meant to be. The other word is interdependent. It means depending on each other or consisting of groups that depend on each other. Do you understand the strength and the security and the safety that we have as brothers and sisters when we willingly submit ourselves to each other under the direction of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is a safety net that God intends to be there for the brotherhoods and for His children. And if we don't use it, we are missing out on a tremendous blessing. That word interdependent literally means to hang upon each other, not in a negative way, but that our strength and our abilities depend on that of our brethren. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming soon for his bride. He's coming for a pure bride. He's coming for a spotless bride. He's coming for a bride of one accord. I hope that is all of you. Let's have a word of prayer and then I will give you some opportunity to share if you like. (coughs) Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege again of gathering around your word. Thank you for the wisdom and the beauty of the bride of Christ, the church. Thank you for the privilege of being part of it. And Lord, as we continue to move forward through history, may we be faithful in maintaining our integrity, our purity, our preparedness as we look for the return of Jesus. Father, I just pray that you would anoint this group of leadership here with wisdom. Help them to be faithful in their calling. And I pray too for the congregation here that you would just give them a resolve to continue to work together and to stay together and to be together in the way they live. Lord, just give them wisdom in that and help them to appreciate the values that they have. Thank you for this opportunity again. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.